0: Good evening. Happening now, you are watching the EdTech Situation Room. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. Tonight, I will be joined by Jason Neifer in an undisclosed location in rural Montana. Actually, he'll probably tell us where he is. Uh, but I am Wes Fryer in Oklahoma City and thankful to be here. We had the week off last week and that just means there's two weeks' worth of articles to uh, not get to talk about because there's always more than we have time for. So how are you tonight, Jason, and what hotel are you joining us from?
1: Um, I am in the – God, it's bad I can even tell you. Um, it's some kind of Marriott property in fabulous Kalispell, Montana, is where I'm joining you from tonight. So it's about two hours north of my home in Missoula. Um, And I am joining a member of my staff on the road where we're visiting uh, about a half dozen schools in the next three days. We visited three districts today and had great meetings. It's great to be out in school, seeing kids use the program and uh, learning a little more about what's going on in Montana's great public schools.
0: And and the contrast this time of year is usually great between Oklahoma and Montana for weather. So uh, we've got snow on the ground or everything's been slushy and melted or what's happened?
1: Um, It's been a little slushy here, but Kalispell, along with the greater Montana Northwest, received a massive dump of snow last week. And so there's um, basically two to three feet everywhere here, except where it's carved out for streets and sidewalks. So it's it's a big, thick white. And then the temperatures have been really nice here. In fact, I think in Missoula on Sunday, um, it's going to be in the the upper 50s um, in Missoula. And we have a foot of ice on the ground. So... Um, I guess it'll just become icier. So.
0: Well, we'll assure everyone that we're not going to digress into, into pure meteorology and climate change discussion, but I had a great conversation with our physics teacher who does teach meteorology and was um, doing the weather for the Weather Channel Latin America when they actually did that. So his, his uh, legitimacy in teaching green screen meteorology is like really up there. But we were talking today about jet streams and as, as far as climate change and He was saying, you know, because we have uh, less cold masses of air at each pole – that's really weakened the jet stream and so what it is allowing is where the jet stream would really kind of keep that uh, cold air mass up up north it's a little bit more pliable and, and so we have these dips and things that have happened so last Friday we were driving up to Colorado to see our sun and the thermostat hit 84 degrees in western Kansas on I-70 but that's not wow. the, the real significant in Mangum, Oklahoma they hit 99 degrees in February that was an all- time Time record. And so that's just insane. And we, you know, had 84 degrees on I-70. It was, it had been in the seventies in Denver. And then we got up to Summit County into Dillon, you know, about six hours, probably after the 84 degree uh, temperature mark, it was in the mid thirties. And the next day it was below freezing snowing. So, The schizophrenic weather continues, but we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about technology news with an educational spin. So how do you describe to other people, Jason, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about?
1: Well, the bottom line is, is that lots going on in tech, and I think that a lot of people assume that there's an easy application of this stuff to classrooms. But these trends probably need special analysis in regards to schools. Um, you know, I, I I think the technology is amazing. I think the technology can be a real powerful uh, force for change and and for progression in schools, but only when applied with um, due diligence and uh, special care. So I think that's what something we specialize in here at the EdTech Situation Room is uh, waxing poetically about, you know, the care that needs to go into great decision making. And one of the things I love about, uh, Both when we're together, Wes, and when we bring in other guests is that it's, it's not about one perspective. Classroom teachers and IT directors and administrators and virtual school school folks and parents and students. And that's, that's something we should maybe work on at some point as a little student panel on the the podcast. But the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, there, there, there needs to be a lot of good thought put into these processes. And so we hope that, you know, by listening to our discussions that, you know, we can help, uh, maybe inspire talk in your classroom, school, or district on the best ways to utilize our finite resources with the infinite number of things available to purchase.
0: Excellent summary. Well, we want to direct everyone to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, where you can not only access the links that we'll have time to talk about tonight, but also other ones. Um, I have a little Chromebook by my side tonight, and I want to welcome both Peggy and Marta. Who are our regular guests, Marta joining us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and Peggy from Phoenix, Arizona. So, welcome, ladies. Excited to have you all with us tonight. And um, I, as, as host, we, we've kind of flip flop between that. Um, I think I want to uh, jump right in talking a little bit about uh, Internet of Things and there's several different articles, uh, that I put under, under security. But this first one, uh, from February 12th from Network World, university attacked by its own vending machines, smart light bulbs, and 5,000 IoT devices. So two weeks ago, the last show, we talked about this hotel in Austria that was hit by ransomware hackers that locked out or in all the folks in the hotel. And they actually paid the Bitcoin ransom in order to, you know, regain access to their hotel. Um, This is from a report that was by Verizon and it's called the 2017 data breach digest scenario. And what I wasn't exactly sure about was if this, I'm if this was actual situation or if they were you know using their imaginations to be really creative um I I still am not positive um but I think I think it's real and basically what these hackers were able to do and, they, and I don't know if you've scanned it or not and you can tell me Wes this was just this was the the imagination of the writers but they were able to take advantage of the um operating systems running inside vending machines, running inside uh, a lot of, they describe over 5,000 different items. And because things were all connected to the same DNS server, basically they were able to, um, you know, have have sort of a cascading attack that that took them over and brought the uh, entire network down. And then they had the incident commander explained what happened. And so I don't know if you had a chance to look at this one, but it just, it's, it's, it's scary to see what's actually happening and then when you see this kind of forecast for you know these kinds of, of attacks it's it drives home the idea that the Internet of Things means you know my house your house and our university is now you know increasing right. the target for hackers so
1: absolutely and I, I did scan this article and one of the things that it reminds me of is that um, and this is this is going to be pretty dorky but uh, actually you know Warning, Jason's a dork again this week, but uh, one of the things I I love about traveling is being in airports, and one of the things that's really cool about airports is that there's a lot of computer technology that makes an airport run, and the first time I was ever cognizant of what is kind of close to the Internet of Things was about 15 years ago when I first saw a Windows-based monitor that was showing off airplane uh, uh, you know, uh, arrivals and departures, right? And it showed the blue screen of death from, from, from Microsoft Windows. I was like, hee, hee, he, hee, hee, you know, pour them. And, um, I started being very cognizant about the fact that, you know, that a lot of devices on the internet, um, are, you know, basically screens on, on, that are being broadcast over, you know, all these distances. And, um, I, I think about that in context of, you know, what used to run, big airports is now really starting to run your house. And I was really entertained by the notion of this article that soda machines and lampposts and other Internet of Things devices together were making up this massive problem. And I think that we need to be cognizant of the fact that that there are, you know, millions of devices that you probably are unaware of are net-connected for whatever reason, and they run firmware and software that is hackable. Um, I think about this in context of the death of Windows XP a few years ago. You may remember that one of the ways that Windows XP lived beyond the death of Windows XP as a consumer and professional product was embedded Windows XP, which is a software suite that's fifteen years old, um, continued to receive updates. For many customers, because they had multiple decade licenses for that software. It was software in ATMs, it was software in, um, industrial machines, it was software in some cases in, um, you know, like manufacturing applications. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about, you know, even advanced software that's running 20 year old Microsoft software, even if it's getting security patches, these are all pieces of this larger puzzle. And, we have to be very cognizant of that. Um, you know, not. A, uh, I, I imagine that a lot of schools aren't accidentally installing Internet of Things things, right? The cash registers, uh, soda sort of machines are probably examples of all those pieces. Network. You're going to want to be conscious of the fact that um, it probably needs firmware updates. Make sure the company provides them, and be really smart about adding this kind of stuff to your network.
0: Absolutely. And I'll uh, I'll reference this article as well, which is the one right above it in the show notes. Uh, this was a Mashable article from February 13th with 802.11 AX, more machines will be able to hop onto your Wi-Fi network. And so this is talking about how capacity and as well as speed is so important, not only uh, in an enterprise environment, we think about schools and universities, but also at home as there's many more things that people are putting online. But yeah, your point is, is so, you know, how many people have run a firmware update on their router or their printer? I mean, most people don't. You just – you think about that as an appliance and something that you just use. Uh, it was not very many years ago that we upgraded our cable modem here at home to – I think it was a DOXUS 3, but it made a huge difference in speed, and I just kind of thought, oh, it's a cable modem, you know, but – we need to be upgrading these things uh, at home. It needs to be something that we're doing from a security standpoint as well as a performance standpoint. And then it's something that we need to be you know, planning for at school. And so um, as I'm reading this article, I'm thinking about the remaining about four years that we have on our Meraki wired and wireless network and, you know, we're doing some expansion. Uh, we have pretty good coverage everywhere, but we don't necessarily have the density in, in every you know classroom and, and area. Um, we're going to be hosting actually an arts festival here in April, and we're hoping that the weather will cooperate. But there's going to be about 4,000 people on our campus, and we're a school of about 900 students. So that's going to be a huge, you know, influx in terms of utilization of our, of our network. But, you know, with these standards, I'm, I'm – as a tech director, I'm kind of like, huh, you know, because just just as you might think, okay, we've arrived, we kind of have good coverage, you know, now, you know, we're going to have to have more more capacity, and so we've been adding some high de- high density access points, which have two Ethernet plugs into them instead of a single one, um, but you know, we've we've seen this evolution, and may, this may sound like gobbledygook. Sometimes we talk about 802.11b and 802.11. N an and 802.11a and these different kinds of, of standards and, and interoperability. But um, the Internet of Things, I mean, again, if you if you think about the future and, and what people are predicting, you know, it's, it's more and more devices uh, connected and able to do more things. And, and there's some exciting potential there as uh, we're able to, you know, speak to our phones, speak to our home, you know, have that Star Trek experience. Computer, you know, start the... Start the crockpot or whatever. Um, but also introduces new security scenarios and I, and hopefully we're going to see, uh, companies, especially on the home side, you know, work through Google and the play store and work with Apple and, and take security seriously because scenarios like the one from this network world article, which I don't know, you, you all can reach out to us on Twitter or in the chat room and tell us what you think if it's, if this is fiction or if this is real, but, uh. Certainly, they're wanting to highlight scenarios of what can be, what could be happening, um, and I don't know. I'm I'm tending to think maybe that this is a this is a scenario based thing, but it's not not a far fetched um, idea that we're going to be able to have. I mean, this is what the what was it called the Mirai botnet that had the attack, I think in December on uh, Brian on is it Brian Krebs I think uh, Krebs on security anyway it was the largest um, denial of service attack. Um, I think ever launched. And so it was because of the internet of things and the ways that this, you know, hackers have written these, uh, these scripts that are able to, you know, hack people's webcams and, or, you know, their security cameras or their refrigerators or, you know, these other kinds of things. So I get and we, Another connection is we need kids who are going to be able to be the white hats, right, who are going to be able to have tech skills and be able to be the cyber warriors of the future. And we've been having workshops right. last summer here in Oklahoma City where they're trying to attract, you know, um, girls, boys. Uh, all kinds of folks to say, Hey, cybersecurity is important and your country needs you. So maybe that's a poster somebody needs to make with, with an updated uncle Sam, you know, pointing the finger saying, we need you to hack, you know, for your nation for, for the good. And it's true. We, we definitely need that.
1: One quick note about uh, security updates. Um, you know, Wes, as you know, I am using Google wifi at home now. So I've got Google's wifi router um, in my home. It's been really great. Um, one of the things I love about that is that it updates firmware automatically. So I don't need to set that off. It just happens automatically in the background. You know, that's not always a winning combination since sometimes firmware can, can brick your, your, your thing. But I think that's part of the future here is that the best well-designed devices will update themselves, and I think that kind of stuff—it—it it doesn't work out great for the, you know, the the twenty-two-dollar Bluetooth light bulb, like like exists in my home. But um, at some point, that's going to have to be a part of this
0: process. And you know, case in point, here here's a, the Chromebook that today I had a little icon there in the bottom right taskbar, and it had a little arrow pointing yep. down, and I just had to click on it, and it said restart to update. It had already downloaded the update. And now here I am running, running the latest and greatest. So not only from a school support standpoint, but from a home support standpoint, right? And I, I would guess that many of the people listening to this podcast may be the tech support of their family, you know, or, you know, when they when they go visit, um, you know, parents and others. And so being able to have tech that essentially updates itself and keeps itself patched, you know, is is a huge thing. And we've, I've shared a little bit on the podcast how we've – I've been wondering about Chrome and things, and, and we're, we're I think we're going to stick with our MacBooks um, and MacBook Airs, you know, for, for faculty that's our recommendation. Um, but it sure is tempting to look at the capabilities of Chrome, which in some ways is a downgrade from a full blown Mac or PC, um, but from an IT support standpoint, you know, is a huge, hugely uh, wonderful support environment. Sorry, I don't think I had my microphone very close, so that may be better. All right, where would you like to go next?
1: Um, Let me go ahead and point out uh, a great article from the Washington Post on February 6th called Fighting Fake News Isn't Just Up to Facebook and Google. Um, it's a really excellent article, and I want to point out really two things regarding um, this particular this particular uh, news item this week obviously fake news continues to be a topic of interest and in import uh, across the United States um, it doesn't help that it appears the politicians are labeling news that is real news as fake news um, We're not really a politics show, so we won't dig into those claims um, but what's really interesting about this um, article is that it essentially says that Facebook and uh, well, that, that there's no a, a lot logarith- a, a logarithmic solutions to um to the fake news problem. Like we, we have to be able to ourselves seek out the best information to make decisions based on that. And I, I it talks a little bit about some studies related to how people identify fake news and it, it it looks at at, at vir- the viral nature of news. It's a great article to read, but the bottom line is is that it continues to highlight the importance for um, you know frankly all of us uh, to be on our best uh, lookout for for fake news but also to empower students. To learn more about this themselves, and uh, it's a topic that I'm extremely concerned about. Um, I've thought a lot about in the last six months, even before the election, about how news is is just not as nearly of of a, a, a great of a fourth estate as it used to be. Um, you know, we had relatively little critical coverage, especially in statewide races in Montana. Um, I think it made a difference in election results, to be honest. But, um, you know, it's there's just so much ballyhoo uh, that exists on the internet that uh, you know we're not necessarily accounting for students for. Um, and uh, the the additional link I wanted to share this week is you may remember a couple of months ago I posted a link to the professor. That had started tracking fake news. Her name is uh, Melissa Zimdars from Merrimack College, and she initially posted a list of fake news. That received some criticism because she was calling out, frankly, sources on the left and right that were kind of sort of news. Uh the the, the two examples that people tend to list is Breitbart on the right and Occupy Democrats on the left. To be quite frank, uh, I wouldn't trust either of those sources, um, even if they if one or the other happened to agree with a political stance I was taking. But she's uh, uh released a really wonderful site called opensources.co. And it's a really interesting uh, way they've done this. Um, they they've made it a, a repository in GitHub, um, and so there's a really kind of nerd fascination piece to this. But um, they have a method that they go through to figure out uh, what uh, what is fake news, and they have a great list available that that categorizes both fake news and um, uh, real news um, and their list of fake news is much lar- larger than their list of, of real news. And they utilize this process to curate, you know, what are the best sources available? And um, it's, it's, it's really good stuff. And so I would recommend, you know, especially if you are interested in broaching this topic in the classroom, it's really a pretty wonderful, um, wonderful process to go through. And so that's opensources.co um, great process.
0: Jason, how do you think this process of digital literacy in terms of uh, of discerning fact from fiction is different now than it was years ago? It wasn't that long ago where we you know were mainly talking about the Northwest tree octopus and you know talking about things that were maybe a little silly that they could masquerade as truth and oh you know we were tricked very different now, maybe in terms of politics and the implications do you see? Our call as as educators to be different in any way because of how fake news and and all of this has been shifting um,
1: I do, and part of it is that it is effortless now to create something that is that that looks like actual news, and um, you know I, I hearken back to um, you know, when when librarians were first tackling the Internet in the late 1990s. And, you know, there was a lot of focus on source credibility and evaluating sources and the difference between you know, pre-internet and post-internet, pre-internet, a library could have a bias source in it, but that's a curated catalog of, 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 of materials, right? And chances are, you're not gonna put something in your current events section that's basically a big lie without labeling it as parody or labeling it as fiction, right? Whereas, Post internet uh, information gives you no sense of the context, or it often doesn't give you any sense of the context that it's in, and so there is a lot of um, you know variability here that we don't really account for in, in our research processes. Um, I'm going to be speaking in a couple weeks at the Montana Gifted and Talented uh, Teachers Conference in Montana, and I'm going to present one of the presentations I've been working on. Um, uh, I presented at, at uh, a number of events in the last year about, um, uh, uh finding the need, it's called needle and haystack, and, and how we can be doing better source evaluation, better searching for, um, you know, learning and then, and then democracy. And one of the things that I argue is that, um, a, a lot of our students have somewhat lazily. Um, you'll turn to the internet and let the logarithm of Google guide, you know, what, what their point of view is on something. And the bottom line is, is that um, uh, all the research in the world suggests that our students are pretty terrible at search. Um, they are, um, uh, they're less likely to read through the sources they find. They skip through them at a much more, uh, 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 Fast rate, which means they 're not giving them any appropriate evaluation, and so if you you are able to trick out search engines to you know to put things near the top that are you know do represent substantial bias, you can you know kind of start programming minds a little bit and so I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is that let alone that there are some sources that are nefarious um, that there 's also a ton of um, Uh, strategies we should be giving students so they can better search or they can find multiple points of view and then evaluate.
0: So on the topic of strategies, I just dropped a couple new links into the document, which if you have, uh, have not found it, you'll find it edtechsr.com slash links is an article that the wonderful librarian Joyce Valenza wrote back in November of 2016 called truth, truthiness triangulation, a news literacy toolkit for a post truth world. Uh, and you can follow Joyce at Joyce Valenza. And uh, I know Peggy's listening and I don't know if Joyce has been on Classroom 2.0 live lately, but that, that might be a great topic for an upcoming show because I know as we're talking about digital citizenship and then just also information, information literacy tends to be what, what our librarians are, are you know focused in on and keying in on uh, this is just hugely relevant and certainly on people's radar screen to a much greater degree. And I know that At our school and probably others, um, you know, parents sometimes wonder as far as digital technologies and how these fit in. And I don't think we would have to persuade a parent very long uh, when we talk about fake news. They may not get excited when we say information literacy or when we say, you know – you know, literacy, you know, triangulation, or these kind of things, but fake news has become such a mainstream term, and people are are increasingly aware. I think of um, of the problems that are fraught with it. And there's not going to be an easy solution to it. Um, One of the articles that I put in here um, is from VentureBeat on October 10th. And it says Twitter hopes machine learning can save it from oblivion. And uh, Twitter had their uh, recent quarterly results announced. They were like down – the stock price went down 12% or something and earnings were were down. You know, Twitter has not been able to figure out how to monetize – it's platform and there are, there is some fear that people have that it may, you know, be bought and purchased by something. I mean, I personally wish they could have just stayed awesome and stayed small and not taken these, you know, millions or I don't know how much, how much investment that they've taken because it's created all this pressure, you know, for them to, to really monetize. But um, what the uh, now part-time what, part-time CEO um, says in said to reassure shareholders um, was that, you know, we've made these investments in machine learning and uh, Jack Dorsey. Uh, And, you know, we're going to, we're going to leverage these things so that we're going to be able to bring news to people that they couldn't have otherwise. And I just, I just really have my doubts about that because, you know, they, the the other article I dropped in there was from Mr. Donut on Twitter, uh, who's one of the, I think chief, chief engineers. And they, they released a, several different updates for security and they backed off on one of those. This was from February 7th uh, by Ed Ho. Um, And they're trying to address abuse, which we've talked about before on this show that it's, that's an important piece of it. But um, I don't know. I just, I don't see Twitter being able to, and maybe I'm underestimating AI and machine learning, but, you know, being able to just glean the truthy parts and, and, you know, not amplify the fake news and and the other parts. So are you, are you, similarly pessimistic about Twitter's future, Jason, or, or do you think we're not seeing the, the bright uh, sunshine that's around the corner?
1: Well, I think the problem with Twitter is is that unless you found a professional context to work within, like, i.e., a teacher that's connecting with other teachers, I think it's hard for Twitter to not become kind of a weird place to, to, to really engage meaningfully with people. And and I'll tell you something that that I've always found about like I really love the concept of Twitter chats. I think that people connecting with one another in that way and 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 talking and discussing uh, is amazing. But one of the things that I found about Twitter chats is that it's really hard to discuss something that you disagree about, right? Um, that um, and, and I've had this experience a number of times where um, I have maybe wanted to express an alternative point of view or I maybe wanted to go against the grain or something that I do a lot actually in discussions and it's part of this is my background in debate as, as uh, Dr. Fryer can also attest to from his background as well that uh, you know, sometimes I like to introduce an alternative argument simply to advance uh, knowledge of 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 the mainstream right and it's really hard to do that in 144 characters in a polite nuanced way and i think that that's part of what Twitter has become, um, you know, less relevant as a social media tool. They were also very late to um, any sort of protections for things like bias or hate or bullying. They're they're better now about that, and they're working on strategies. But I think a lot of Twitter's problem has been too little, too late in dealing with the downfalls of the platform.
0: Something else I'll say about Twitter is, you know, back in, in the beginning days of Web 2.0, uh, when blogs were the new thing and, and, you know, social bookmarking. And so we were using tools like Delicious and Digo as ways to save our Internet finds and, and organize those things with tags in the cloud, all that over the last three years or four years. I don't know exactly when, you know, Twitter has become my repository for links. Uh, this show actually is now. And I find myself referring back to our website. Cause I, Oh, I know I saw that, you know, and I, and I know it's there in the links. Um, but uh, I, I had installed this program uh, called Tweetnest, which is a, a pretty geeky thing. You have to have your own web host and mess with PHP, but basically it, it makes an archive, your own searchable archive of Twitter. Um, mine is twitter.westfire.com. You can go there and, and search and find it. Um, it. This this conversation about wondering of, of the future of Twitter makes me think of two things. Number one, you know, what does the world look like if we don't have Twitter? It, for me, as an educator, has become the most important platform for communication, for interaction, for sharing, bar none, you know, the, the, there, there's really not another tool that can compare. And so I know it would be a, a big, significant impact in my life. Um, and, and I know there'd be other tools and other things that would come along. But the other thing, and this makes me think of, of Alan Levine, uh, who's CogDog on, on Twitter, he's been uh, writing in the last, you know, month or so, uh, just about the the benefits of having your own blog, of owning your own content, of of not being beholden, you know, to these third parties that are are needing to monetize and 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 uh, you know, intellectual property wise. Just thinking about your content, and I'll talk a little bit later as far as this this hack that I've experienced, but anytime you risk losing, you know, uh, a digital investment that you've made in a website or, you know, a, a posterous account or, or, or whatever, you know, it might've been audio podcasts. Um, my friend, Bob Sprankle, passed away last year and I've still got some of his archived, uh, podcasts and blogs and things that I need to be working on and, and, uh, and restoring because, you know, his domains have expired and, Anyway, there's there's a whole there's a lot of different elements to this, and uh, I, I mentioned last week in the show. I think the uh, Kevin Kelly book I'm I'm listening to called The Inevitable, which is like twelve technological trends, and he forecasts this future where all content's going to be you know linked and integrated, and it's just going to all be tied together. We are not there now, and so many of the conversations that we have um, can be fairly ephemeral. They may may or may not stay. Um, so. You know, I think you've used the word information trap before, Jason in Sessions, and how we all need traps where we can put information and keep it safe. And whether that's Evernote or it's Google Keep or it's a Google Doc or you know, um, Twitter. Um, you know, the, the, there are some things that are going to be enduring, and and the need to be able to say, yeah, I saw that, and let me go find it. And you know, that that is going to be important. And if Twitter does indeed you know, not survive. Um, some of the articles that I was reading was were saying, you know, they're, the, the clock is ticking for them because if they don't figure out how to monetize, you know, the people that have made these investments are going to do something about it. So anyway, I'm not wanting to be doomsday about it, but it, it does make me think about a lot of different issues because when you heavily invest in a technology and in a platform, and when you make connections with other people that become extremely important in your life... Um, I don't know, there's there's probably a, a digital uh, digital addiction side to that as your Classroom 2.0 Live was talking about, you know, how much one of those questions in Peggy's quiz that she found was, how much time do you spend with virtual friends or you know with people that aren't in your face-to-face world? Twitter's certainly been a very enabling technology for that kind of thing. I think to a, to a benefit, but anyway, I yeah. selfishly hope that, they're going to figure something out, and and maybe AI can can uh, come to the rescue. But I'm not going to place my money on on that bet. All right, where would you like to go next, or do you want me to pick one?
1: Um, let's see here. And am I coming through clear, Wes? The
0: uh, your audio's been a little bit. Uh, f- Fuzzy at times, but it's pretty good. the video's is cutting out a little bit more, but overall we, we've been okay, and you haven't dropped. you know Jen Carey, when she was the, the guest the first time, I completely dropped out of the show for a sizable chunk of time, so your vid- your audio or your, sorry, your video did just disappear. but are you still there? I think I just jinxed us. Oh my gosh, he just dropped. okay. well, there you go. I just mentioned that Jen Carey had dropped out, and there there Jason drops out. Well, while we are waiting for Jason to come back, which he hopefully will, uh I will mention, um, let's see, another article under the security um, topic. So this is an Ars Technica article from February the 13th. And the title is, Now Sites Can Fingerprint You Online Even When You Use Multiple Browsers. <sighs> and I don't know if this fits into the category of, you know, be scared, be very scared. I mean, what do, what do you do? Um, here's the situation. So we have uh, lots of folks who want to keep track of what we do and what we like, and have a profile for us so that they can market to us. And there are some ways that we have thought we could, you know, become more anonymous by uh, running ad blockers and you know, in the extreme running a a browser that's called Tor. And the Tor project is especially important to journalists in countries where they're persecuted and where, you know, they're dissidents and things like that. Uh, it's also used for the dark web and people are doing, you know, things that, uh, are illegal, you know, using tools like that that allow for anonymity. But what this article by Dan Gooden says is that website, this is an art, this is like a proof of concept thing that, that some researchers have published a, a paper about, but our web browsers actually have sort of a fingerprint or a thumbprint based upon the extensions that we have installed, based on our computer and how much memory we have and what kind of graphics card and and all of these different things. Uh, and, and then the ways that we have our settings configured. And so they have determined that it's possible to not only identify somebody repeatedly using one web browser, but even if you use several, um, I find myself now mostly using the Chrome browser, but still have Firefox installed and Safari on on the Mac side. Um, and so this fits into this whole idea of surveillance and, and tracking. And, um, the link that I would make to one of the the articles that we shared in the last show, or it might've been the show before that, um, involved this company called Cambridge analytics. And this was the same company that was employed by the, the, the anti-Brexit folks in Europe that, that, um, defeated this initiative and, and ended up, I guess, well, it succeeded. Britain is, is out of the EU now. And so that company, um, also, they just work for conservative campaigns in the United States, and they work for the Cruz campaign uh, prior to in the primaries prior to the general election, and then work for trump and They have somewhere between three and four thousand data points on you know two hundred million Americans or something something just real crazy so anyway it 's just kind of more insight into how uh, we have companies that um, are are able to to you know, keep track of what we're what we're liking and what we, um, ha, you know, our personalities and and then use those kinds of things actually for political ends in, in many cases. And in the case of both of those um, votes and, and elections, you know, to specifically target voters and to present a targeted message to a voter based upon this profile that, that is built, which, which isn't just like I shopped at target and, and, you know, I bought diapers this week. Um, it's also things like, you know, Facebook quizzes and, and things that you identify with your personality and, and building these really complex, um, profiles of, of us individually. So I don't know if I'm going to need to keep on talking here for 20 minutes, or if Jason is going to continue, um, being unable to, to join. So, um, Marta and Peggy, I can see in the chat. Um, are y'all still there? I, I don't think I'm having difficulty with my, uh, my connection. So, okay, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're still there. Well, I'm, I guess I'll go ahead and persevere a little bit. Um, and, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit early if, uh, if, oh yes, he's coming back. I see. I don't see his picture yet, but he returns. Yay. And, and I, I think on with, with better, a, better connectivity.
1: I think so. Yeah. So let's give this a try.
0: <laughs> well, I, I did the monologue there for a little bit and uh, talked about the uh, site's fingerprinting and a little, little surveillance there. So nice. Is, did you happen to run a speed test there at the hotel before you got online, or you? Um,
1: actually, actually, I'll, I'll tell you. that My biggest problem was I was trying to go off of the cell, the cell signal, and the the a Wi-Fi was slow. So I thought, oh, the cell's got to be better. And then the 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 uh, still emerging T-Mobile signal in Western Montana crapped out on me. But you know,
0: okay. you do what you got to do. It's coming along. It's coming along. Okay, well let's let's digress and tell a, a bandwidth story. And I've got one in mind and maybe you can think of one yourself. So I was um, reflecting the other day and I it was actually maybe this morning because I was on NPR there's a uh journalist uh, um, that I had an opportunity to to be in Hawaii with in 2007 when I worked for AT&T and they were dedicating the memorial to the, the USS Oklahoma. And so um this was in in the time in Honolulu where they didn't have three G connectivity. They were still on the edge, which is like second generation wireless, and it's absolutely poor streaming. You really didn't even want to stream on three G. You know, now with LTE, that that's a doable thing. But uh, we were supposed to do two phases. We were, we, we did a successful video conference. Uh, actually from the fire station uh, right beside the USS Missouri and the firemen moved their trucks out. We had to go to Circuit City and buy a 100-foot Ethernet cable, borrow the cable modem that the firemen used, and then run that out to the Tanberg video conference unit that we, we sat in the middle of the firehouse you know, so we could have uh, have uh, uh, Dick Pryor, who's the, the journalist, interview these World War II veterans with the USS Missouri behind it. The next day, however, we were supposed to do some live video conferencing from, you know, of the ceremony and it was raining and we were going to try to do something wireless and it just it just did not work out. So, you know, that that's one of these areas where it's just. Startling. I mean, you're you're still running into some connectivity issues there in in uh, rural Montana, as you know we Absolutely. did when we were in the western western part of Kansas and eastern Colorado. Um, they're on three G. There was not maybe AT and T has coverage there, but T Mobile doesn't. So anyway, I was just reminiscing about those times, and uh, th- those are things that perhaps, especially urban kids, you know, may not have much of a of a experience with because they're just going to sort of grow up believing that high speed connectivity is ubiquitous and it's just always there, but it's, it's, it, it's not in a, in, in quite a few parts of the world. So did you, did you have any particular bandwidth experiences on your latest European trip or, or anything else that you would share as a uh, quick anecdote? No, your European
1: bandwidth is actually pretty sweet. The hotel we were at had 80 down and um, that's pretty sweet. Uh, the apartment we were in in Paris had 40 down. That was pretty sweet. Um, But back in the States, um, actually, I have two kind of related stories. My in-laws live in a a larger chunk of property south of Helena, Montana, Helena, the state capital, and uh, you could kind of call it, I guess, kind of a suburb of Helena, but they're up in the mountains, they got a big chunk of land, and the only access other than satellite is there is a DSL line available, but it gets... On average of 128k down, which is slower than my DSL line was that I first put in my apartment in 1998. So, um, it's a very, very, very slow line. And, you know, they're willing to pay more. They're both advanced net users. They both have tablets and cell phones and laptops. And the bottom line is it's just not available. And there's no, um, there, there's no real profit for the cable company to put lines up that high, that high. Um, The uh, phone company that provides DSL service says we meet the minimum requirements for providing uh, broadband access to the region. There's there's nothing to do with that. And what's funny about that is I wasn't in, in Boise, Idaho last week presenting at the Idaho Educational Technology Association um, conference um, with my my partner in crime, Mike Gustinelli. And we were in uh, we did a sketchnoting session um, at at uh, the the conference and um, we were getting on and and a gentleman was in the room that had had a big iPad Pro with him that he was going to uh, use for our sketchnoting session. And he said, wow. Um, uh, wow, the internet's at and I can't remember what it was fifty, sixty, seventy uh, megabits per second, and I didn't know how to take that from him. Like whether it was wow fast or wow slow, and he said, "Oh, he says no. Wow, this is wicked fast." He said, "At home, I I get or I get two hundred kilobits down, um, and he's on a satellite connection, and so it's limited." And I said, "I don't want to tell you this, but in the summertime at the University of Montana." Uh, with no kids on campus we get 800 megabits down right like i download you know big linux isos on a torrent in in a second or two right it's just ridiculous but we do have a really big gulf between the kind of halves and have-nots of bandwidth and i don't feel like we've done a great job of, of bridging that gap i know a ton of money has gone into rural states Um, in the form of of federal monies and grants and uh, necessary development by telecoms in exchange for for, uh, channels of bandwidth and yada, yada, yada. And there's a good percentage of rural America that's not on bandwidth that we would call, uh, uh, you know, a a big pipe in 2017. So it's it's a very real issue still.
0: Definitely. Well, we are applying for E-Rate for the first time this year. Um, We're actually – we're we're pretty sure we're going to be applying and you know i'm hopeful that there'll be some changes in in some of the rules there but it um you know part of part of the goal of that ostensibly is to address the digital divide and um yep it's it's real so you don't have to you don't have to go very far afield to experience that and and in in some cases that can be good you know digital disconnection that that defines a vacation for for us now but uh, even as we were in Colorado <laughs> at a ski resort this weekend, the first time my kids had ever had a chance to go skiing, um, you know the, the the Wi-Fi was was good there, and there was a lot of Minecraft being played, and you know YouTube videos being watched, and you know screens screens were still very present. So anyway, it uh, it. Your, your session on digital distraction, which I'll put a link to it here. Uh, Jason on Saturday did a, a great session for Classroom 2.0 Live, which if you don't already watch it on Saturdays is a great source of professional development and ideas. Anyway, it, it gave, gave some, gave some food for thought. So we continue to wrestle with those, those issues. Um, I would love for you to talk about the Skynet article. Um, is that one you'd like to, to chat about? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, uh, we, we tend to think a lot here about, um, you know, what what future technology uh, is it has in store for us. And a really wonderful article um, from Wired um, on uh, last Friday, I think is when this was released. But um, we the, the article basically argues that. Um, you know, Skynet, which is the, um, uh, the evil computer system in the Terminator movies, um, a really, um, uh, you know, concept of kind of the, the singularity, the self-awareness, all the things we, we're terrified about in regards to computers and robots. Um, is that you know we're, we do have a lot of people that fear that the robots will become self aware and take over and that 's a, that's a big debate amongst um, the nerd, nerds among us, but um, the bottom line is that that 's not the biggest risk to us. Um, the biggest risk to us is because is, is to our middle class because that w- was established on the backs of the second industrial revolution in the United States that brought us the manufacturing base that created the middle class in, in, in the United States. And so, um, you know, the bottom line is we're now in the, the fourth decade of a massive decline in manufactured jobs well before they were being shipped overseas, they were being automated in factories by the robots that we now talk about in context of, of, of kind of fearing their, their self-awareness and, and well before they will become a threat in that way, they're, going to end up threatening our jobs. And that's something that we're not planning around. It's happened faster. In fact, I've heard that notion from a number of commentators in the last six months as we've debated uh, manufacturing jobs in the United States, that if we had better planned for this, we could have started shifting jobs earlier, but it didn't look like in the early 1980s that automation was going to be as big of a threat as it's become. And so we we've talked in past weeks on 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 the podcast about um there was the carrier um I think it was carrier uh, air conditioning company that Trump claimed victory for keeping in the United States and one of the headlines that was a subheadline of that was That, you know, they openly admitted that some of the money they were receiving in the form of tax breaks would go to automate a number of the jobs that were being saved. And, you know, um, I, you know, ignoring the debate positively or negatively about globalization, it may not matter if most of our jobs end up going to automation anyways. Um and by the way this is not a United States phenomenon China is dealing with the same issue um their factories uh because it, it, taking the humans out of it increases productivity it uh decreases human impact of 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 of, of some of the really labor intensive jobs it's it's everywhere and it feels like this is not getting as much headlines as the discussion of globalization
0: Absolutely. And the interesting thing about China is they have had a much shorter window of time to grow their yep. middle class, right? Because it's really only, I guess, in about the last 20 years that, you know, the I don't know if that is that the tiger or who's been awakened or whatever the metaphor is. But, you know, they, they, haven't, they <laughs> haven't had as long of a time. I'm thinking of uh, the world right. is flat by Tom Friedman, you know, they haven't had as long a time to grow that middle class. And so having having been to mainland China three times and Hong Kong once. You know, you go over there, and it's there's just all kinds of things that you think about, and you get to have interesting conversations with people on on airplane on the airplane too in this long long flight. You know, one of the things I I came away from those experiences realizing is that if. China fails, if the government of China fails to continue to deliver on the increasing economic uh, prosperity of their people, then they are politically really in a bad place because uh, of demographics. And I don't know, I I think that that is a, a, a treacherous sort of situation when you think about the uh, numbers of folks who have moved to the city and and know that peasant life and and life in in rural rural China where starvation is a is a very you know realistic possibility uh, isn't the isn't the world they need to live in. Uh, suddenly, you know, Foxconn who employs hundreds of thousands, they may have a million employees. They they're producing all of of Apple's iPhones and and other things. And you know, you, list, you we don't have any of those links in the show notes tonight, but i've 've been reading some articles with you know interviews with with their uh, c e o and that 's absolutely what he wants to do is is turn this into a fully automated process where the robots can work twenty four hours a day and it's what did they say it's all um, there's there's cap expense and op expense there's capital expenditure at the at the beginning and then operational expense and you know no health benefits no sick leave no you know n- none of that there's capital expense for for robots so um On that topic, in the same little area, we put these articles in the show notes under Future Watch. Um, There's a Guardian article from today uh, that says, In the age of robots, our schools are teaching children to be redundant. And about three-fourths of this article is a rant against factory model schools. and, And part of my response to that is, you know come visit our school come visit you know many teachers i know who are doing very innovative things and are not just you know having kids sit still in desks taking tests becoming uh, automatons but you know he i think at the he actually i'm not positive i should look at the, at the at the author but they um you know they do give some shout outs to uh, some some different approaches for for schools but Oh, gosh, it's so important for us to amplify innovation and to amplify um, ways in which schools of of today are not like the schools of yesterday. There is such a huge tendency for um, people to, you know, just look at the world naturally through the lenses that that they have. And that meant the school that they went to, you know, years ago. And in many cases, the schools of today look very different than the schools of yesterday, as I know that you can attest, Jason, working as you do in, in a virtual um environment you know and and all of the affordances there's challenges there but there's also affordances and do you all have a way of amplifying some of those success stories and i would i'm sure for the legislature and and stakeholders overall it's really important that you tell that positive story How, how do you all do that at the montana virtual academy it,
1: it's 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 hard uh it's it's a challenge and part of it's because we do have somewhat of a disconnect with some of our student body because they are you know enrolled and take the classes in their local school but we do um, you know we do connect with students that can help tell our story of where we've worked really well um, uh, we have a fun fact, uh, one of our, uh, the first, one of our alumni to get elected to the legislature, um, oh, wow. is this session. He's an 18 year old uh, legislator from Haver, Montana that, that took a, a, a class, a, a government class with Montana Digital Academy and was able to speak pretty eloquently to the notion of, of how our program really does afford access to, um, you know, to students in, in, in rural areas and smaller schools across the state. Um, but you know, that's a, that's, that, that, that's a challenge for us, but that's part of what we need to do. Um, you know, we uh, – one of the things, and I've, I've actually said this a couple of times today, one of the reasons why we've been successful is because we don't oversell our product, right? Like, there's a lot of really great ways this can be used, but there's also a lot of ways it can be used in in a, in a less desirable fashion. And I think that's part of the reason why – I, I, I shudder a bit at, at criticisms of a broad based criticism to schools. And as you say that, you know, schools are this this weird factory model. If we really want to get rid of the factory model, part of the thing we have to do, it has nothing to do with classroom teachers. It has everything to do with the fact that we've built everything around a credit regime that uh, is so inflexible that we really can't. Build around uh, mastery or the time it really takes for students to learn um, and, and students definitely we can have a lot of debate about things like learning styles, uh, which I tend to think are are, are not as as clearly labeled as, as others, but where there is no debate is that students do learn at different paces. You know, some students are can pick up things very quickly. Um, Some students need a lot more time to engage with the content to do so. That's no more clear to me than it is in mathematics, where, um, you know, if we want to really free things up, we should be looking at breaking down these barriers to say that everything has to be an equal value, that somehow class A and class B. you know, and, and, and I'll say that, that, you know, uh, you compare just about any class to AP Physics and it seems like value, like even putting a value on those two to say it is a 1.0 credit is a ridiculous notion. Um, you know, like instead we should be finding better ways to provide students more diverse opportunities, or to let them specialize in, you know, things like music if we want to. And we still have to get a lot more education, um, you know, to students than those specialized fields. But that's the way we need to be attacking, um, uh, you know, factory schools, not, you know, picking on what I think is a, a, you know, classroom teachers that that are having to evolve much more quickly than education ever has.
0: Yep. Well, Peggy in our, in our chat room is pointing out she loved, loved the article and the thesis overall that was a, a, a passionate plea that schools don't have to be like the schools of the past, the, you know, the schools yep. today don't. And that is, that is definitely true. So I think I'm just going to yep. quickly mention our two remaining articles and then we'll do geeks of the week. And I think we might awesome. cover all the, the articles even briefly. Um, I'm sure that everyone is waiting with bated breath for the release of planet of the Apps. So filming of planet of the apps has finished and it is, a, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, shark tank, reality TV, um, you know, trying to go behind the scenes as far as app development, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so maybe this is going to hope, you know, further develop the idea of being a geek is cool. Um, but anyway, that was a Mac rumors article from February 11th, and then the last one that is really really out there. It's one of these kind of articles that you would hear Ian Jukes uh, talk about. In fact, I think Ian Jukes tweeted it. Uh, it's from uh, Peter Diamantis, who is an amazing guy. I mean, this guy is like an MD and has a degree in like, uh, you know, Mechanical engineering or something is it, and, and he's, uh, involved with, uh, singular, singular university, the singularity. The article is Ray Kurzweil's wildest prediction nanobots will plug into our brains, will plug our brains into the web by the 2030s. Um, yeah, and so Diamantis, he's earned degrees in molecular genetics and aerospace engineering from MIT and holds an MD from Harvard Medical School. And, uh, he's the guy that does the X Prize and it, you know, Anyway, this this is wild. If you want, I mean, he's, he's talking about brain-to-brain communication, Google on the brain, scale, scalable intelligence. We're already getting there with our devices, and we've talked a little bit about that on the show, how we're becoming kind of cyborgs. We feel incomplete when we don't have our device. I mean, and, um, and it is addictive, as Jason was pointing out in his Saturday Classroom 2.0 Live. There's a real uh, chemical feedback mechanism that's happening there when we are stimulated by information. And so imagining if we have trouble today, you know, disconnecting and dealing with that, uh, what is that going to be when our brains are being plugged in? And I know that DARPA and our military, you know, they're 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are uh, at a consumer level. I'm, I feel confident that there are classified projects that have, have already advanced this, you know, well beyond the, you know, I can move my prosthetic arm back and forth, you know, using brainwaves, which is, is being done today. So, um, are you, are you a believer in the singularity and, uh, a fan of Ray Kurzweil watch- or, or do you think he might be a bridge too far?
1: Um, well, I, you know, I am honestly, I wake up every day in awe of what we've already done, um, with technology. I, I I, I don't think that there is a, um, I, I don't think there's really a limit to it. Uh, we may not see some of the really wacky stuff until we're all long gone, but, um, you know, I, 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 I I have someone else's uh, kidney in my body. I have a connection to everyone on earth via my phone. I can access 27 million songs um, on demand on Spotify. Um, I can publish a video from my phone from anywhere in the world. I have access to TV from apps that on demand ever. I can access my computer at home right now. I can buy a flight via an app and be gone in 20 minutes like, some amazing stuff has happened.
0: You're in Kalispell, Montana, I'm in Oklahoma City, you know, Peggy's in Phoenix and Marta's into the Goosey Galpa. And here we are yep. on Wednesday nights, you know, getting together, learning yeah. learning, learning together. How crazy is every that every
1: week. Yep, every week. And that's that's not I mean, if you had told people about that in the early nineteen eighties, they would have I mean that's 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 the stuff of science fiction television, and here we are.
0: Yep. We are. So, all right, well, it is the top of the hour and we need to do geeks of the week. So I'll do mine and then Jason, you can, uh, you can take us out. Um, very briefly, I will mention that I was the victim of a targeted cyber attack on my main blog, speed of creativity, uh, uh a couple weeks ago. And I am really pretty reluctant and not sure whether or not I want to even blog about this because I certainly don't want to draw more attention to myself. Um, there, I did have one other WordPress hack issue on a different website with a different host, maybe four or five years ago and and that was a Turk someone who claimed to be a Turkish hacker you know who's anti Israeli and they made the whole site you know go down and, and display this this image that was anti israel <clears throat> and the, and what of course saved us there as it does in all cases of of ransomware and things like this is your backups right so have your backups make make your backups, make sure those are scheduled, and make sure that they work. Um, and so anyway, in this case, it was only when I would log in to get to my dashboard to uh, administer the site that that this image would would show as a result, if you happen to use WordPress and be a WordPress person, um, I had become very enamored with a two step uh, verification plugin called Clef, C-L-E-F. Well, obviously Clef wasn't worth a hoot you know, in this case. And then the other thing I was using was something that Kevin Jarrett had recommended called WordFence. And it is really important, I think, to run security plugins on your WordPress site. You don't just want to run a straight up WordPress without you know, these different plugins that are going to do a lot of things to protect your site. So what I have now transitioned to um, on many of my sites, and I'm in the process of getting the rest of them switched over, is to something called iThemes Security Pro. And there is a free version of this. I went ahead and, and um, got the pro version and am hopeful that this, along with, you know, changed passwords and, um, and uh, you know, some some of the, the, the advanced features that this offers is going to be able to do a better job for me with security. But that definitely makes you feel quite vulnerable and uh, also very thankful when the backups, you know, come into play. So, and I've had that happen with teachers, just had that happen a, a week or so ago where, where somebody, you know, thought everything was gone and we got that flash drive out and every one of her files was backed up and, you know, she was just ready to hug me. And it's one of those beautiful IT moments where you're like, you know, and I, I couldn't take the credit for it. Somebody else had helped her back up, but I was like, tell your story to others, you know, the importance of backing up. Cause that really, is your best recourse when something catastrophic happens, whether it is a hack or a drop laptop or something else. So that's the geek of the week. I themes. security. Yep. Well,
1: and I'm going to actually change mine because I, now that we're being more security conscious, I can't with good conscience recommend the thing I'm record, was going to talk about this week. So I'm going to go change mine. Of course, I've taken the uh, um, I've taken off the uh, Um. um the documents I'll get in there when we're done tonight. But the thing I'd like to talk about in regards to backing up is that you, it's called the three one backup strategy. And it's something that I do personally. It's an important one. Um, actually the Homeland Security has a three two one backup page, but three to one backup page means having at least three total copies of your data two which are local but on different mediums, and at least one copy off-site, right? So for me at home, um, I have my data on my main desktop computer. I have it backed up to a NAS, which is a network-attached storage, and so I have a little box that lives in my house that I have, I have three hard drives in, and it wraps all those hard drives together into one big hard drive that has duplicate data so one of the hard drives can die, and the data would still be safe. I just need to pop out a new hard drive right away to maintain data security. And then, um, I also have one backup in the cloud and I happen to use Carbonite for that. And actually Carbonite and Google Drive and Dropbox. I mean, I, I'm actually probably 3295. But, um, the, and, and I'm not talking about everything and, you know, like the, the music files I have and stuff that I can always re-download from iTunes and yada, yada, yada. I don't worry about that stuff. But my documents, right? My tax records, my information related to that, um, school stuff that I have on my school, uh, Google Drive account. I also, and very careful about that as well and use a three-two-one style strategy for that as well as work. And it's, you know, I've never really needed it. Um, I rely primarily on cloud-based uh, uh, things so that when I download a new laptop, I get a fresh copy of all my files all the time. But, uh, you know, we are in an age where this data can be easily wiped out and you've probably heard stories on the internet about people that had hacked iCloud accounts that the files disappeared or Google Drive was compromised or whatever those pieces were, but it really is important to have your data in multiple locations.
0: Definitely so. All right. Well, um, I am Wes Fryer. Uh, I'm the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School in Oklahoma City. You can find me on Twitter at WFryer. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And uh, we actually wrote, <laughs> activated a new firewall in, in our uh, school this week, and it's been a little exciting, and I did not get the Technology Tuesday post up and so uh, maybe I'll do a Technology Thursday, but um, I'm probably most excited about the, uh, the way we're, ways we're showcasing innovative teaching and learning, and that website is showcase.cassidy.org. So I invite people to check that out.
1: Excellent. And I am Jason Eifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. We serve students uh, as a supplemental program in the state of Montana. I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council of Computer Education. By the way, at the end of next week, uh, early bird conference pricing for our fabulous event in March in Portland, Oregon ends. Go now to ncc.org to register and please consider registering for the Google Summit I am running day one along with uh, fabulously fun Mike Augustinelli, where we're bringing in the Northwest App All-Stars, the best traders from Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana to teach people about the goodness of Google. So www.ncc.org You can find me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And I blog at blog.ncc.org. You can join us here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, 10 p.m. or when people are sleeping on the East Coast. Um, and I keep, you need to look up the UTC uh, uh, time, but I neglected to do so. Um, you can join us live by going to edtechsr.com where you can find live links to our, our live broadcast. Join the chat room and, 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 and join along with the fun. And you can always find an archive of both the articles and the podcast itself at edtechsr.com. Have a great week.
0: Awesome. Good night, everybody.